We're going to jump to verse 31, and then we'll come back to, to verse 18. Uh, so starting with verse 31, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. And then they will scourge him, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Jesus is often, often attacked by skeptics and critics alike that this suffering and this death was just an accidental event. They denied that his sufferings were planned and that his sufferings were personal. And we know, we know nothing can be furthered from the truth. Any suggestions are totally wrong and completely out of touch reality. You see that Jesus knew exactly how his life would end. He knew it down to the tiniest detail. He knew exactly what the scripture said. He knew details about his death and his sufferings. He knew exactly what the people were going to do. And they were going to do it at their own discretion. So Jesus takes his disciples aside and he says to them privately, you know, they need to know what's going to happen. They need to know the schedule. But the question, did his disciples understand what he was telling them? In verse 34, it says, the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now, this verse is saying the same thing three times. They understood none of these things. These things were hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So just to make sure that we don't miss the point, they didn't get it. Okay? Jesus makes sure that we know that they didn't understand. The Bible is holding nothing back. This is exactly what he said, and they didn't get it. Because they were looking for a, a messianic king and a messianic kingdom. They were, had a completely full-blown view of what a Messiah would be and what he would do. Death and crucifixion, that wasn't part of the story. That wasn't part of the picture. They expected a coordination, not a crucifixion. They expected a Messiah who killed his enemies, not one that would be killed by his own people. The idea of a crucified Messiah was absurdity. And the idea of a crucified Messiah is ridiculous. The idea of a crucified God is ridiculous. And the idea that God would come down and be killed by men was absolute folly. To the Jews, it was even worse than folly. It was blasphemy. It was a stumbling block. It was scandalous. It was definitely a roadblock. It was such a massive barrier that the disciples couldn't get past it. It didn't compute. They didn't understand. And these sayings were hidden from them. They couldn't comprehend it. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, 
if you read it, you'll get a lot more details about how the Gentiles thought and how about the Jews thought about this. And this is kind of a brief summary about it. The bottom line is these men, they didn't get it. They just couldn't get it. And God's sovereignty, for whatever reason, God's sovereignty chose at this moment not to reveal it to them. But after, after the crucifixion, well, that's a, another story in another sermon. So let's go back to verse 18, to the first story. So unlike many churches, you don't often hear money preached at about here at the Ridge. But today, money's going to have to slip into our, our teaching. The Bible offers more than 2,000 verses on money. In fact, 15% of everything that Jesus spoke about, taught about, was on the topic of money or possessions. In fact, it is more talked about than heaven and hell combined. So to help us to better understand today's text, and to keep your attention just a little bit longer, I've asked some guys to hand out to each of you a brand new $1 bill. So, guys, if y'all would do that for me. How often do you get to go to church and get money? Uh, we're paying you to listen today. So if you would, just for a short little time. So I would, you know, when you get your dollar, just hold on to it for the rest of this lesson. Uh, we'll be referencing it a couple of times. So just hang on to it and as the guys finish handing those out. Just another moment or two. So today, we read in verse 18, a ruler questioned him. And putting together that with verse 23, for he was extremely rich, makes this story very relevant to us today. According to World Data Info, in, 19, in 2016, the average monthly income for the United States was $48,000 a month. That ranks us number ninth among all the countries, $48,000 a month. There's more than 40 countries that average under $1,000 a month. With the lowest being Madagascar at only $33 a month as their average income. So comparing our average income to that of the rest of the world, I'm afraid that we fall into that rich category. I think you have to agree with me that we fall there. But this story is also relevant to us because this man came seeking. He came seeking eternal life. And there isn't anything more important than eternal life and spending it in heaven. You know, if you were to die today, that would certainly be an important item on your agenda. This man sought eternal life 
through the works of the law. He came and he said, good teacher, what should I do to have eternal life? He was thinking that the way to eternal life was by law keeping. So Jesus responded directing back to the law. Basically, Jesus said, hey, you want to go with the law? Then let's go with the law. And you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Matthew records that Jesus also summarized the rest of the law by adding, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus pointed out that living under the law required perfection. You have to live it all perfectly to receive eternal life. And this man, this man didn't understand what Jesus was telling him about perfection. This man didn't get it because he immediately replies back. He says, all these things I've kept since my youth. So I think Jesus just cuts to the chase here. He stops talking about a list of do's and don'ts, and he says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, I think that Jesus was tired of dealing with this list business. Jesus says, all right, if you want to be perfect, what is what you have to be, that's what you're going to have to do. Keep a list of do's and don'ts. If you want to go to perfection, go sell all your possessions. Go sell everything. Give to the poor, and you're going to have treasures in heaven. Then, then come follow me. The key commandment here is following Jesus. Following Jesus. You want to be perfect. There's only one way for sinners to be perfect. And that is to follow Jesus. So, everybody still have hold of their dollar. Okay, good. Then imagine this man holding on to his dollars. He's got his money squeezed in his hand and he's holding it really tight. And notice when you're holding on tight to your money, there's no room, no room for the ultimate treasure. He has his money in his hands and he's just driven it so tight. And then Jesus says, you want to be perfect? Then you have to follow me. And in order to follow me, you have to take me by the hand. You have to drop your money and let it fall on the poor, the widows, and the orphans. You just don't let it fall on the ground, but you, you give it away. And then your hands are free. You're free to take Jesus. Verse 23 said, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Matthew said, When he heard this, he went away grieving, for he had great possessions. He was sad, he was grieving, and he went away. What did he go away from? You know, he went away from Jesus. You're supposed to have Jesus in your hand. You're supposed to have Jesus as your treasure. Jesus said, I will take you. I will take you into my hand. I will be yours. Just let go and have me. But this man, this man just wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do it. He, and he walked away from Jesus. And, and what did he walk away into? What did this man 
walked to? Well, he walked into the rewards of money. He wants his money and what money can get him. You know, money can get a lot of things, especially power, ego, pleasures, and cool things, better things. And that's what this guy chose. This man chose materialism, and he just walked away from Christ. Today, do you realize you have that same choice? You have that same choice. And when the man walked away from Jesus, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said that things that are impossible with people are possible with God. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And why do you suppose it's so hard to enter the kingdom of heaven if you're rich? Why can it be so hard? I mean, isn't salvation by faith? Isn't salvation by faith? And of course, of course salvation is by faith. Entering the kingdom of heaven is by faith. It's not about divesting or adding to your wealth. It's having faith. So, Again, what's the big deal? Why can't this man just have faith? And the reason is something that's a little different here. It's because faith is just not trusting Jesus as your Savior. Faith is not just trusting Jesus as your Savior. You know, how much people would love to paste a Savior on their wallet and nothing changes. No lifestyle changes. No spending changes. No, nothing. Hey, I've got a Savior. Jesus, he's in my back pocket. I'm home free. I've got fire insurance. Who wouldn't want that? But evidently, evidently that's not what's going on here. Because Jesus said it's hard. It is hard. And the reason it's hard is it's because there's not what faith is. Faith is having Jesus more than just a Savior. Trusting Jesus as our treasure, as our Lord. Trusting in Jesus as an alternative to trusting money. This is our treasure. Now we have Jesus as our treasure. And that was the issue. Faith is faith in Jesus. And we talk about treasuring Christ. It's about believing. Faith is not an audition. It's like we got saved by faith and that faith is some kind of other thing and we get to live like the devil the whole week. And then there's this added big thing, you know, that added big thing that only serious people get, you know, the treasuring Jesus part. Treasuring Christ is faith because faith is trusting him as something. Jesus is infinitely more valuable. And so if you've got a lot of this and you're holding on to a lot of this and it's supplying so many needs it's supplying so many comforts so much affirmation then how are you going to open your hands it's hard it's hard and that's why god is in the business of knocking things out from underneath us 
You know, we complain when life goes bad. But bad times, they're really not the problem. For us, it's the good times. This is the problem. And the more that we have, the bigger the problems. And that's why it's hard. Well, Jesus made it even worse. He didn't stop there. He didn't even say it was hard. Jesus said it was impossible. Jesus looked at the disciples and said, you're right. You can't do it. With all your efforts, it is impossible. But, praise God, there's a but. God said there is a way. For with God, all things, all things are possible. And for these disciples, and maybe even for us, that's a theological paradigm shift. The disciples were astonished. They were shocked. They asked, well, in that case, who can be saved? You know, over the many years, it's really funny how many people try to get a camel through the eye of a needle. You know, I've heard lots of funny stories. You know, there's a low gate in Jerusalem, and a camel has to crawl on his knees to get through it. In case you know, no, camels don't crawl on, on knees. That's pretty hilarious. And that's the point. And that was the point of it. It's Jesus uses the word impossible for man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because it's impossible for everybody. It's impossible for everybody to enter the kingdom of heaven because of their works. And that's the reason. Paul told us in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot submit. The mind that is set on the flesh cannot. And that's another word for impossible. It cannot please God. But you can't make yourself enjoy what you don't enjoy. And we all know that. You can't make yourself enjoy what you don't enjoy. And that could be anything, including church, prayer, even Bible reading. You can do what you don't like to do. You can do what you don't like to do, but you can't like what you don't like. And you can't believe what you don't believe. You can't believe something is true if you think it's false. You see, believing is not an act of willpower. I think this is really false, but I'm going to believe it anyway. That's impossible. Totally impossible. And believing is not like that. Believing is seeing something that is true and putting your faith in it. If you see it as false, you can't believe it. You can't. It's impossible. If you can't see anything as beautiful, you can't see anything that's beautiful if you think it's ugly. Your will cannot control your actions. But your will does control your will. A loving heart can produce loving deeds. But an unloving heart cannot produce a loving heart. Jesus said it's impossible for a man doing this, holding on to money, to take Jesus. If you love this, 
you can't love Jesus. You hold on to this. You can't hold on to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is an impossibility. And when the disciples heard this, when they heard this, they were astonished. And Jesus said, you have to be born again. You know, one night you're looking around and you're at home and you might think that church is boring or even Christianity is boring. Pornography might even become a compelling. But money, money's really getting attractive. You're playing around on your smartphone and then all of a sudden you start thinking, you consider hell and how horrible that might be. And then all of a sudden Jesus might be looking pretty sweet. And you decide to trust in Jesus, start believing in him. It's about life change. That's the new birth. Have you ever considered what happened to the man in this story? What happened when he walked away from Jesus? Maybe, maybe we can find out if we look at 1 Timothy. It says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plung men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. To me, it looks like this guy committed suicide. Meaning he, he prospered his whole life long. But he left Jesus. He left Jesus and he perished. So remember this man and don't desire to be rich. Rather, instead, remember this man and resolve to live like John Piper says, with a wartime lifestyle. Live like a wartime lifestyle and give the rest away. Dave Ramsey says that you live like no one else, so later you can live like no one else. You know, at the Ridge, we're not into a lot of rules. So we're not going to tell you what type of car you should drive or how big of a house you should own or how many things you should own or what you should be doing. But we want to encourage you to maybe go the other direction. Go the opposite direction of where most are going. You know, we get bombarded 24-7 with advertising. There's these great and wonderful things out there that we just can't live without, according to the ads. We've got to have this better and more useful thing. There's so many things to buy. Back in around 2002, I had a chance to take a, a tour of a Queen Mary. It's a retired luxury liner. It was parked in Long Beach, California, and it's a museum now. The funny thing about the Queen Mary is that during World War II, it became a troop carrier. So I got to take the tour, and on one side it's set up as a luxury liner, and on the other side it's set up as a troop carrier. It's about 300 feet long. And so I looked on the, on the side that was a luxury liner, and at the dinner table, I have never seen so many knives and forks around one place setting. I didn't know that many existed. And instead of just having one plate, there must have been 15 plates around this for one person to be eating on. That, that was just amazing. And then I looked in the, in the suite that people slept in. They had this big four-poster bed with this magnificent mahogany uh, nightstand and dresser and this huge mirror. I'm going, wow, this is some way to live. 
But then you look on the other side of the boat, on the other side of the partition, the wartime atmosphere, and they had this metal tin tray. You know, the types that had the little slots in them, you put the vegetables in, and that other slot that you put type of a meat type stuff in it. You know, that's what they had. And they had one fork and one knife to go along with this thing. And then they had bunks. And you know, when, when you think of bunks, we think of, you know, bunk beds, you know, a couple of bunk beds. No, their bunks they had were stacked eight high. Now, this luxury liner in its heyday, 3,000 people got to ride on it and go across the Atlantic Ocean. During World War II, 15,000 troops rode this luxury liner. And it wasn't much of a luxury liner then, obviously. It took a world war to transform this ship from luxurious to a wartime lifestyle. What? What will it take to transform your life? You know, materialism drives this country. And to a sad extent, it drives a great many Christians. So this morning, we're just asking you to consider the go the other direction. You know, people will look at you and think you're strange. People will look at you and say, hey, you don't want the same things I want. Why is that? What's, what's, why are you doing that? What's your treasure? What's important to you? And then, then you get a chance to tell them about Jesus. What is important in your life? Well, let's take a, a quick look at two other stories from the Old Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but Old Testament stories and Old Testament characters, those seem to be hard names to pronounce. I don't think their fathers liked their sons very much. <laughs> but I'm going to try to use this story because, these couple of stories because they're a great deal of relevance to today's lesson. The first one is about Elijah and his servant Gehaz and a soldier named Nahum. Now, many of you may know this story. Nahum was a Syrian soldier. He was a mighty soldier. He was over a bunch of troops, but he had a really big problem. He had leprosy. You know, it's where the skin rots off your flesh. It's just an ugly, ugly disease. But he is a great soldier, even with this, and he goes to the inn. They've captured different people throughout the world, and one of the captures was a little Israeli girl, and she was a servant in his household, and she spoke up one day and said, you know, there's a prophet back in Israel that probably can get rid of this leprosy. You ought to go see him. So Nahum went to go see the king and asked the king's permission to go. And the king said, sure, go on. So he goes on to Israel and he sees the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said, you're asking me to cure leprosy? You've got to be kidding. You know, I'm not God. Well, one of the king's servants heard the story and said, hey, you forgot about Elijah. He's down the road. You need to go see Elijah. So the soldier goes down the road to see Elijah. Elijah doesn't even come to the door. He sends a messenger outside to talk to this soldier. And he tells the soldier, tell you what, you want to be cured from leprosy? Go down the Jordan River, dip yourself seven times, and you'll be cured. Well, this soldier is a mighty man, a mighty soldier. He's used to doing a lot of things. He gets irate. He just can't believe that a messenger tells him to go dip in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a dirty river. It's kind of like going down to the Trinity River. The soldier says, you know, we've got beautiful clean rivers back home. Why can't I go dip there? You know, this is, this is terrible. I'm not going to do this. This is beneath me. 
So he packs up his stuff and he heads toward home. Well, he has another servant. Thank goodness for these servants. And this servant says, listen, boss, you know, you're a mighty warrior. If that prophet had told you to go attack another country, you'd have gone in and you'd attacked them, no matter what the odds are. Right? The guy said, you're right. I'd have done that. And he said, so what's it going to hurt to go dip yourself in a river? Come on. Man up. So the soldier goes to the river, and he dips himself in several times. Six times he dips in, and he's still got leprosy. He's going, this is ridiculous. He does the seventh time. He comes up, and his skin is smooth and pink, just like a brand-new baby. He's cured. Leprosy is gone. He just can't believe it. He is thrilled beyond belief. He's totally well. So he goes back to Elijah, and he's not going to take no for an answer this time. And he falls down on his face. He's lost all of his pride. Grace has humbled him. He does, doesn't lose his leprosy. He loses his false religion as well. Because he tells Elijah, from now on, I'm going to serve the one and only living God. And you've cured me. How can I repay you? What can I give you? Hey, I brought money. I brought clothes. I've got all this stuff. You name it, it is yours. Now, Elijah said, I don't want anything. I'm not in this for money. You take your money and you go home, love people, love your healing. Well, Elijah's servant, Gehaz, he was listening. He's standing around the corner. He was listening to what was going on, and he thinks Elijah's just gotten old. He can't believe his boss just turned down all this money. This is ridiculous. And so he takes off after Nahum, and he finally catches up with him, and he comes up with this beautiful, this amazing story. It's just a, a beautiful story. It's a, it's a total lie, but it's a beautiful story. He says, you know, my master sent me after you because as soon as you left, we had two missionaries come home from the mission field. And their clothes are horrible. They're falling off of them. They're in rags. And my master said, you have some clothes. Can you give them some clothes so they can have something to wear? And Nahum, of course, is just joyful. And he said, sure, you can have these clothes. In fact, I got money. I'll give you money too. So Gaz takes the money, takes the clothes, and he goes back. In fact, he has so much stuff that Nahum has to send people with him to carry it all home. And he drops off by his house and he puts it in his house. And then he goes around the corner and he goes to Elijah's house. Well, Elijah looks at him and says, hey, guy, where you been? You know, I've been looking for you. And he said, well, I've been around the house. You know, I've been over here and over there. You know, Gehaz is probably not the most intelligent guy. He's told lies. He's done all this stuff. But one thing he probably forgot, Elijah's a prophet. <laughs> this is what Elijah says to him. Didn't my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Nahum shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So Gehaz went out from Elijah's presence, a leper, white as snow. So remember the rich man. The leprosy clings to you when you're in love with money. It's deadly. 
It may look beautiful to the world, but if you look close, you can see its deadly sores. In the last story, a man that you can admire, and again, one of these hard names, is Meshavetheth. Now, Meshavetheth was a descendant of Jonathan. And if you remember, Jonathan and David were best buds. And Meshavetheth loved David. But Meshavetheth was lame. He was crippled. He couldn't walk. So we flash forward a few years, and David's son, Absalom, decides he wants the kingdom, and he rages war against David. And David is forced to leave the town. So Meshavetheth is, again, crippled. He's got a servant named Ziba. And so Ziba packs up and he takes off with David to leave town. And after they go out of town a ways, David looks around and says, Hey, Ziba, where's your master? Where's Meshavetheth? And, and Ziba says, Hey, he didn't come. You know, he likes Absalom. He didn't want to come on this journey. But I came. I'm here. You can trust me. David was crushed. I mean, he just knew that Meshavetheth loved him, and now he's not there. So, with all the evidence in front of him, David says, Hey, Ziba, in that case, you can have all of Meshavetheth's property, all of his possessions. When we get back to town and I'm back in control, it's all yours. There's some great stories we're passing up here. We're going to flash forward again. And David is re-entering the town. Absalom has been killed. And there, at the city gates, lays Meshavetheth. He's dirty, he's filthy, he hadn't had a bath since David's left, he hadn't even shaved since David's left. David looks down at him and says, you know, where were you? I thought you were my friend, I thought you loved me, and here you've, you didn't even go with me. Meshavetheth looks at him and says, go with you? Have you looked at my legs? I ain't got none, can't go with you. You know, I wanted to, but Ziba left me, I couldn't make it. So what does David do? You know, he's, he's got a kingdom to run. He just got back in town. He's got to put everything in order. So David decides right then on the spot, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give half of everything to Ziba and half to Meshavetheth. That way, you know, whoever's telling the truth, they got some money here. They got it covered. This is what Meshavetheth said. He said, David, let Ziba, let him take it all. Since you, my lord the king, have come safely to his own home. And that's what we want for the ridge. If somebody comes along and says, hey, you can have this or you can have that, we'd love for you to say, no, I've got Jesus. And Jesus comes with me every day. He won't ever leave me alone. He'll never forsake me. I don't need a lot of this. So as we close, remember this rich man. Take the dollars and stick them on your refrigerator or on your bathroom mirror to remind you of Gehazi. And also, just be like Meshibetheth. Let's bow for prayer.